From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. As testing for COVID-19's increase, the age demographics of the coronavirus have dramatically shifted. Statewide, 56% of adults diagnosed are under 50. Only 44% of Californians are in that age bracket. The challenge is many younger patients are likely spreading COVID-19 through social contacts before they show symptoms. We'll look into this development and others for our daily coronavirus update. And an outside audit of L.A. County's primary day election system spotlighted several significant problems to be addressed before the November general election. We'll find out what's being done. Air Talk after NPR News. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. And I want to begin with my deepest appreciation and thanks for what happened yesterday with uh, a second day of our two-day summer fiscal year end member drive. We exceeded our goal in fundraising. We thank you so much. More than $400,000 was raised from more than uh, 4,000 members. It was just an extraordinary, an extraordinary outpouring. 4,400 people in two days contributed raising that $425,000. So thank you. I, I can't thank you enough. And during the, the four hours of air talk over the past two days, um, the Per hour fundraising was yet again extraordinary. You are part of the most generous audience I'm aware of in public broadcasting. It's it's an extraordinary outpouring. Thank you so much for your generous support of AirTalk, and uh, it certainly uh, leaves us uh, on a high coming out of uh, this two days of fundraising. Well, we begin today's program with the latest on COVID-19. The White House Coronavirus Task Force is actually holding its first briefing in nearly two months. Right now, Dr. Deborah Burks, who heads the task force, is speaking, and we'll probably be dipping in a bit uh, for what she has to say, as well as Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's also also scheduled uh, to be talking. But uh, let me bring right now to the microphone Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Dr. Blumberg, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. I want to start with this rather startling statistic about the age demographic of COVID-19, because we're seeing in California, 56% of the adults diagnosed now are under 50. This um, undoubtedly a result of increased testing. And so, you know, people who are asymptomatic can now get tested if they think they might have been exposed. But, you know, the only 44% of California's in that age demo, and yet you're looking at 56% of the positive cases. Talk a little bit about the risk here because of how younger people are typically out more and um, maybe more likely to be asymptomatic. 
Yeah, I think it, part of the increase is due to increased testing, but that doesn't explain all of the increase um, because we know we also have increased rates of hospitalizations and increased rates of death, and the percentage of positive tests is increasing. So this is a true increase in the number of cases that are occurring in California, and it's not surprising to me that it's occurring among young people. In fact, I'm, a, I'm happy that it's occurring among young people because they're less at risk for complications and, and death and severe disease. And we see young adults out and about more since some of the social distancing restrictions have been lifted. So this is undoubtedly due to increased exposure as people go to restaurants and, and bars and gather and have parties. Well, and then let's talk about the potential for risk to the more vulnerable part of the population, people over age 65 and who have um, comorbidity factors for COVID-19. Um, are, are there any ways with this significant increase in younger people getting COVID-19 to better protect people more at risk? Well, we're really trying to. Um, 30 to 40 percent of the deaths that have occurred have occurred in congregate living situations such as nursing home where the most vulnerable people are. And um, with increased number of cases, you know, it's not going to remain isolated just to young, healthy individuals because it's an, an, an infectious disease. So it's going to end up increasing risk to everybody, including, for example, the staff and caregivers who work in those um, care homes and nursing homes. And so it's going to end up getting in there. So it increases the risk for everybody. You know, it's kind of like driving. You know, we think of, well, if I'm a safe driver, I should be okay. But that's not true. If you have, you know, drunk drivers out there, and they not only put themselves at risk, but they put everybody um, at risk. Uh, we just got uh, news that Florida, which is seeing a significant outbreak of COVID-19, um, is suspending drinking at bars. This after the Texas governor said that bars are going to close in his state and they're going to reduce capacity for restaurants to have diners inside restaurants. Uh, your thoughts about states that are starting to back up in uh, some of the ways they opened? Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, Texas and Florida were some of the states that were really aggressive in terms of opening up. And what they're seeing is their hospital capacity is gradually being reduced. So one of the main reasons that we've had these lockdowns is not just to protect people, but we want to make sure that when people inevitably get sick, that the hospital capacity is there for them, that there's a bed for them in the hospital, in the ICU, that we have enough ventilators. And if you start um, approaching critical capacity levels, then you need to do something. People need to realize that we're, it's, not, it's not likely to be a straight line of just opening up. It makes sense to, um, to, to dial it up, dial it down, and make sure that we have capacity for everybody that needs to be treated. If you have a question for Dr. Dean Blumberg of UC Davis Children's Hospital, where he's Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases and Professor of Medicine, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also post on the AirTalk page, post on the AirTalk Facebook page, 
or tweet at AirTalk with your question. Dr. Burks right now is just going through uh, some uh, graphics where she's looking at charting over the last week of percent of uh, positive uh, results to COVID-19 testing, so it's not very radio-friendly. But when we get to the point there's something that we can dip in on uh, that we think is newsworthy, we will be hearing uh, from either Dr. Burks or or Dr. Fauci or both uh, in this White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. Again, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. And a little bit later this hour, I want to ask you as an AirTalk listener about how... um, how much you would be willing to retreat if you're starting to do more things out in the world now. Maybe you're eating out, maybe you're getting your hair cut or styled, or you're doing other things you weren't doing for the first three months or so of the stay-at-home order. I wonder what would get you to go back to essentially a stay-at-home order. What would be the developments that would convince you to do that, or is there nothing? Did you feel like you were you were at the end of, of what you could handle being locked down and you're just going to um, cover your face, stay six feet from people as best as possible, and continue to be out in the world. 866-893-KPCC. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, uh, wanted to also ask you about the use of uh, dexamethasone uh, and some of the positive results that it's seeing. Does that appear to be cutting the death rate for those who end up hospitalized? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, Dexamethasone didn't work in SARS-1, and it didn't work for MERS, which is related coronavirus. And so it wasn't expected to really work for um, COVID-19. But um, the investigators uh, appear to found a, a sweet spot in the illness where it does work. It's a very blunt tool to decrease inflammation. And it appears that if people are not are, are, are critically ill, but not too sick, they will benefit. So if patients are on a ventilator, but they're, they're not, not, not that sick, um, the use of dexamethasone cuts mortality um, by about a third. And if they're on oxygen and not yet on a ventilator, it appears to um, cut mortality by about 25%. And then theoretically, it probably won't have much use outside of those situations. So if somebody's not that sick to be on oxygen, they probably don't have enough inflammation that this anti-inflammatory medication would have a benefit. And again, if they're really, really sick, then then it's probably too late to use something like dexamethasone. And is its benefit uh, as a steroid um, primarily for the lungs or does it have other benefits? The only benefits that I've seen to date have been um, for the lungs. Um, For the children who have the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, there are other medications that uh, appear to deal with that inflammation um, in a a more focused manner. And do you know if we've had many of those uh, cases of, of the childhood inflammatory system cases here in California? You know, I I heard of a case that was hospitalized in San Diego, um, and that's the only case I've heard of in California, but I I haven't talked with all of my colleagues in, in every hospital. 
866-893-KPCC, the Air Talk page, kpcc.org. Chance for you to ask questions of Dr. Dean Blumberg. Um, Josie in Pasadena asks, how confident are you that we'll have an effective vaccine soon? And I assume by soon she means uh, close to the end of the year, maybe early in 2021. She's hearing some public health experts saying they're not so sure that it's going to happen on that timetable. I don't know. I have. I really have no idea. I mean, the last thing that I want to see is a vaccine rushed into use. We all know that there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy out there. So I want to make sure that when a vaccine is recommended for public use, that it's had widespread testing, that we have a lot of confidence in its safety as well as effectiveness. And the numbers that I'm seeing thrown around, something like doing these studies with 20 to 30,000 people, to me, I don't think that's adequate. I think we need studies with 90 to 100,000 people if we're going to be recommending a vaccine for every single person in, in the state, in the country. We need to have a, a lot of confidence that it's safe and effective. Uh, Dr. Burks, right now in the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force News Conference, uh, talking about the rising number of positive cases in California, just what we're talking about now. Kathy in Santa Monica says, with us seeing this rising number of younger Californians uh, who are positive, what about the severity of symptoms in that demographic? Are the majority of, of these cases asymptomatic? And do we know what percentage of those under 50 are having to be hospitalized? Yeah, I don't know the percentages, but most of the people who are being tested are symptomatic, and those are the ones that are, are being positive. So there's there's less asymptomatic carriage in this age group compared to like children, for a, a example. Some people who aren't symptomatic at the time of the testing will, will characterize them as pre-symptomatic and that they will become symptomatic within a day or two. So um, most of them are symptomatic. If people are healthy and don't have any comorbidities who are not obese, don't have asthma or diabetes or heart or um, kidney disease, then they're most likely going to get better and recover. But if they do have any of those risk factors, then they have an increased rate of hospitalization and bad outcomes. All right. Very good. We're talking with Dr. Dean Blumberg joining us on AirTalk, UC Davis Children's Hospital. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the Coronavirus Task Force, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, is now taking the lectern. Facing right now, it's very clear from the maps that you saw that there are certain areas in the country, states, towns, cities, regions that are doing very well, that have followed the guidelines and are opening up in a prudent way that's been effective. However, as you can see, we are facing a serious problem in certain areas. Now, when you look at the map, it's very interesting because you see some dark parts of the map and some light parts of the map. We have a very heterogeneous country, but heterogeneity does not mean that we are not intimately interconnected with each other. So what goes on in one area of the country ultimately could have an effect on the other areas of the country. So let's take a look at this problem that we're facing now, this resurgence of cases. I don't think there's time enough now all day to try and analyze and figure out the multifaceted elements that went into that. You know, everything from maybe opening a little bit too early on some to opening at the right time, but not actually following the steps in an orderly fashion, to actually trying to follow the steps in an orderly fashion, but the citizenry did not feel that they wanted to do that for a number of reasons, likely because everyone feels the common feeling of being pent up 
for such a long period of time. So we're not going to say blame, we're not going to try and analyze it, but there is something that's very important about it that I'd like to get a message to the country in general. When you have an outbreak of an infectious disease, it's a dynamic process that is global. So remember, what happened in China affected us, what happened in Europe affected us, what's happening here is affecting others. We can't get away from that. It's interconnected, so therefore, if we are an interconnected society, we've got to look at the fact of what our role is in trying to put an end to this. Because everybody wants to end it, everybody wants to get back to normal, and everybody wants the economy to recover. I think we all are pretty common in that. That's a given. So, what can we do? What I think upon talking to a lot of people and reflecting on it, we have such an unusual situation because of all of the decades that I've been involved in chasing infectious diseases. I've never seen anything that is so protean in its ability to make people sick or not. There's no other infectious disease that goes from 40% of the people having no symptoms to some having mild symptoms, to some having severe, some requiring staying at home for weeks, some going to the hospital, some getting intensive care, some getting intubated, some getting ventilated, and some dying. So that depending on where you are in that spectrum, you have a different attitude to this particular thing. But anyone who gets infected or is at risk of getting infected to a greater or less degree is part of the dynamic process of the outbreak. And I know because I can understand when I was at a stage in my life when I said, well, I'm invulnerable, so I'm going to take a risk. I think what we're missing in this is something that we've never faced before, is that a risk for you is not just isolated to you. Because if you get infected, you are part, innocently or inadvertently, of propagating the dynamic process of a pandemic. Because the chances are that if you get infected, that you're going to infect someone else. And although you may feel well, and because we know, if you look at the numbers that you're probably here later on, the overwhelming majority now of people getting infected are young people, likely the people that you see in the clips and in the paper who are out in crowds enjoying themselves, understandably. No blame there, understandably. But the thing that you really need to realize that when you do that, you are part of a process. So if you get infected, you will infect someone else who clearly will infect someone else. We know that happens because the reproduction uh, element of the virus is not less than one. So people are infecting other people. And then ultimately you will infect someone who's vulnerable. Now that may be somebody's grandmother, grandfather, uncle, who's on chemotherapy, aunt who's on radiation or chemotherapy, or a child who has leukemia. So there is what I call, and, and again, I just want to bring this out without making it seem that anybody's at fault. You have an individual responsibility to yourself, but you have a societal responsibility because if we want to end this outbreak, really end it, and then hopefully when a vaccine comes and puts the nail in the coffin, we've got to realize that we are part of the process. So when the vice president went back, pulling back a couple of months ago, when we showed about the guidelines to safely reopen the country, we've got to make sure we drop back a few yards and think about that, 
that this is part of a process that we can be either part of the solution or part of the problem. So I just want to make a plea with people when they understand the stress that they're under as we try to tackle not only those states, but the light-colored part of the country, even though they've done well, they may have gotten hit badly like New York and then came down, or they may not have gotten hit badly at all. They are vulnerable if we don't extinguish the outbreak sooner or later, even ones that are doing well are going to be vulnerable to the spread. So we need to take that into account because we are all in it together. And the only way we're going to end it is by ending it together. Thank you. As Dr. Anthony Fauci, courtesy of our media partner NBC4, speaking at the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And with us right now on AirTalk is Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine, chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Blumberg about what we just heard from Dr. Fauci and get his uh, expertise and thoughts on this as well. You're listening to AirTalk on 89.3 KPECC. Reminder, Film Week comes up at 11 o'clock, and our critics will tell us about Jon Stewart's new film. Longtime host of The Daily Show wrote and directed Irresistible, starring Steve Carell, Chris Cooper, and Rose Byrne. And Will Ferrell is back in a film he stars in and co-wrote Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. It's another one of his uh, parody films streaming on Netflix. We'll hear what our critics think about that. Back with more of Air Talk in one minute. Again, I want to thank everyone who contributed over the past couple of days and contributes other times as well to support AirTalk on KPCC. We had just a wonderful turnout over the past two days supporting the program and generally supporting uh, all of KPCC. We heard from 4,400 members in the past two days, raising $425,000, exceeding our two-day goal. That's thanks to your generosity, and we deeply appreciate it. We're talking about the latest in COVID-19 with UC Davis Children's Hospital uh, Professor uh, Dean Blumberg. He's Professor of Medicine, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Disease. Dr. Blumberg, your thoughts on what we just heard from Dr. Fauci at the White House Task Force News Conference. I think it was great that he mentioned um, that we are all part of one community, that we're all interconnected in the U.S., and I think that also illustrates the stunning lack of federal leadership um, that we've come to expect in this situation from the CDC, which has really been on the sidelines, and the career professionals who looked influenza H1N1 and Ebola and Zika, they went right up to it, looked it in the eye, and took care of us and gave us the best specific public health advice that kept all of us safe. We haven't heard from them um, during this um, pandemic. So it's really, you know, it's in contrast to that, although I agree with him. And when he talks about the interconnectedness in the world, how does it make sense then for the U.S. to pull out of the World Health Organization? This is right, right now when we really need to be cooperating with all these other countries at the highest level because an outbreak anywhere in the world makes us more vulnerable. Dr. Blumberg, we have some listener questions. Old Roger <laughs> writes on Facebook, uh, consider that those of us older folks are safe at home and not requesting tests. 
This would explain higher positives among the younger adventurous uh, folks. Um, uh, what do you think, uh, Dr. Blumberg? Does that make sense to you? Is that part of what we're seeing? Yeah, um, I don't want to give us, me, I'm part of that older folks group. So <laughs> let's give us all a pat on the back here and say us older and wiser older folks who are feeling more vulnerable, maybe we are doing a better job of protecting ourselves. Um, and yet, you know, when, when everybody is out and about, when young people who are feeling invulnerable are out and about, as Dr. Fauci mentioned, that does place everybody at risk because it is an infection. And even people who are trying to protect themselves still do go out and get groceries and interact with others. All right. Uh, Allison from Santa Monica says, although though there are so many cases among younger people, seems like there's a blame narrative being placed on them. They're being scapegoated. But the fact is the government opened things up so people would go. So isn't the responsibility really on government for how they're choosing to reopen? Um, well, the only thing, uh, Dr. Blumberg, interested your thoughts, but I, I thought in reopening that the government did mandate um, in most places, mask usage and uh, social distancing, which has been sporadically adhered to. But what, do you think government was wrong for re, for reopening? Well, I, th- I think, you know, the, you, you mentioned earlier about how Florida and um, Texas have um, restricted bars. And so, you know, if you have people who are crowding around a bar to try to get a drink and they're not wearing masks because they are drinking, so you can't do that with a mask on, you know, that's that's going to be a perfect situation being indoors and all for, for transmission. So I think one, it might have seemed like a good idea at the time. But, yeah, I think you need to be open to then putting these restrictions back in place. Maybe bars can be open, but only with table service and not bar service, and that that can limit. So, yes, I think there's a, a huge role for government guidance in this situation. And I wouldn't put all the blame on young people, but I would say that I'm hopeful if young people or anybody who's out and about out um, and taking advantage of going to a bar or restaurant, please, please wear your mask. They protect others and they protect you also. Also joining us is the dean of the California School of Forensic Studies at Alliant International University. She is a forensic psychologist who works in crisis response. Uh, Her research interests include disaster, mental health and risk assessment. Diana Concanon, thank you very much for being with us today on AirTalk. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dean Concanon, I I want to ask you about sort of the psychological part of this, because um, for people feeling all cooped up now, starting to go out in the world, maybe getting together with friends or extended family members, um, if we see a significant increase in the number of COVID cases, even above what we're seeing now, can the genie go back in the bottle, so to speak? Are, are people um, going to naturally start limiting their social interactions? Or is, is that not really psychologically are, are possible for people to do? Well, I think that we are to a certain extent seeing a certain fatigue, a psychological fatigue, if you will, in our communities that the um, profound and long-lasting effects of this are taking a toll And one of the things that is so incredible about us as humans is that we tend to be adaptable and we need to tap into that. We need to realize that this is not going to be a short-term event and we are going to consistently need to be vigilant and to engage in safe and harm-reducing behaviors 
for ourselves and for those around us in order to get through this together and well so that we can enjoy and engage in activities that are meaningful to us. We may have to do so differently, but we will find ways to do so. We're talking with the Dean of Lyant International University's California School of Forensic Studies, Diana Concanon. Dean Concanon, uh, also wonder about um, messaging by public health authorities, because I think part of what we're seeing in some people's resistance to wear masks or to distance is um, a a, a pushback, a feeling of, of being controlled by government. So is there a way to come up with public health messaging that doesn't trigger that kind of a response? Yeah, I think there is always a challenge in that um, we saw this even after events like 9-11, for example, when there was an a attenuation of the balance between personal liberty and public safety. And there's always a little bit of pushback that we see. During that time, it was when we installed cameras um, in locations where previously there were none. And for many, that felt like an intrusion. Masks for some now feel likewise, like an intrusion on personal liberty. And I think it's critically important that we recognize that the masks, you know, as Dr. Bloomberg said, um, protect each other, they protect ourselves, and we have to be unequivocal in that messaging, that we have a responsibility and obligation as citizens to engage in behaviors that are safe, that are going to keep us physically safe, that are going to allow us to reopen our economy so that we keep our nation safe and so that we keep our global society safe as well. Diana Concanon, Dean of Alliant International University's California School of Forensic Studies. Uh, we just heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, who in the White House uh, task force uh, uh, on coronavirus news conference, saying this sort of, you haven't seen anything like this with the all all the different, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of oddities of this coronavirus. How does that factor into the stress that comes with this? That, you know, people kind of understand how seasonal flus operate. They understand, um, you know, even over time, we better understood how HIV infection occurs. But there's so much of this that we don't know. And Dean Concanon, how does that uncertainty factor in? It exponentially increases individual stress levels. Uncertainty is something that is very uncomfortable for many people and causes a great deal of anxiety. And it is very important during times such as this to recognize that there is an element of this that um, is unpredictable. We, we're seeing it. We're seeing how, in fact, what we thought was going to be the trajectory of the virus is, is different. We're still in the first wave when we were expecting perhaps there to be a slowdown and then see a second wave. And that uncertainty, that unpredictability can be extremely stressful, can be extremely um, exhausting, fatiguing. And so what's, what is critically important to our mental health during this time is to tap into that resilience, to firstly recognize that it will take a toll, it will likely take a toll, and to take those the mental breaks that we need to connect with those activities and individuals that 
can help soothe us, can help us to reset, get engaged in exercise, you know, self-care practices, the events and, and activities that help us to t- take a break a little bit from the uncertainty. At the same time, keeping current with what is happening, in, with, particularly with the virus, so that we have adequate information and we, are, we have the most current and accurate knowledge to be able to protect ourselves, our families, our communities is also important. So that balance is, is very vital to our well-being. Dean Concanon, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Uh, I know you came out of a, a meeting to join us. So thank you, thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Diana Concanon of Alliant International University Forensic Psychologist. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, you have any thoughts on this, given that, um, it, it, in a sense, this is a case where government messaging can actually backfire? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I like that Dean Concanon highlighted the mask issue, that people feel that, you know, it's an infringement of their liberty or or that they want some control over it. And, and, I, and I understand that, but it's also a basic hygienic measure. So I just don't think you make a political statement. You know, it's not a political statement to wear a mask or not. It's a hygiene issue. It's like saying that washing your hands after going to the bathroom, you're not going to do that because that's a, because you want your freedom. You, know, you want, you want the, because it's a political statement or you'll go to a party and you'll double dip into the guacamole because you're free to do so. Yeah, you're free to do so, but that's just dumb, and it's not very nice to other people. But but I think the hand-washing directive for general um, sanitation and cleanliness, everybody understands there's nothing confounding in there. And I think the fact that there has been so much um, back and forth and changes in the messaging because of uh, the, the large number of unknowns with COVID-19 that that has kind of helped to to fuel the suspicion of public health authorities, maybe suspicion too strong a word, but lack of confidence. And I, I do think that that's factored into people's reaction to directives. Well, I think that's fair. And the public health messaging has definitely changed over time, but it's changed over time because we've learned new new facts and because we have scientific evidence now that not only do does wearing a mask decrease transmission to others, but it protects the wearer of the mask is protected from getting infected too. So once we have this new information, I think it's important for people to realize that wearing a mask is the safest for the individual and it's also safest for the community at large. Dr. Blumberg, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. We wish you a very good weekend and good health. Thank you for joining us. Stay safe, Larry. We appreciate it. Dr. Dean Blumberg, who's professor, professor of medicine, chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. He's on the roster of our medical all-stars that we bring in daily to talk about COVID-19. This is the place for in-depth conversation about the coronavirus, the very latest in our knowledge of the virus, as well as the public health measures to try and contain its spread. You're listening to Air Talk on 89. Point three KPECC. We're going to look at um, an independent audit of Los Angeles County's uh, registrar of voters. We're going to talk about what happened with our primary back in March and what are some of the recommendations for helping the November general election go more smoothly. We'll talk with our two guests in just 90 seconds.
So good to have you with us on this Friday on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Film Week is coming up. John Stewart, longtime host of The Daily Show, has a brand new movie that he's written and directed, Irresistible. It's available on video on demand and stars Steve Carell, Chris Cooper, and Rose Byrne. Will Ferrell is back with a new comedy with uh, a typically long title, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. It's streaming on Netflix. We'll hear about that. And uh, a lot of other films, including a new South Korean drama. Uh, and uh, you really want to hear what Angie and Wade have to say about House of Hummingbird. That's coming up as well. Film Week at 11 o'clock right here on 89.3. But right now we turn our attention to an independent audit that was released least last week, looking at L.A. County's $300 million new voting system, which made its large-scale debut in the March 3rd California primary. And as you might recall, there were some of the vote centers where things went rather smoothly, others where there were technical glitches, very long lines up to three hours in some cases, and uh, voters not happy about their experience. With us to talk about the audit, as well as the research they themselves have done from Caltech, professor of political science and co-director of Caltech's um, co-voting technology project with MIT, Michael Alvarez. Professor Alvarez, good to have you back with us. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be with you. So uh, there are a number of important findings in this study, but what, what for you are the most important fixes that need to be implemented by November? Well, I, the big problem that we saw now, again, I think, you know, if you read the report and I, I think that Professor Guerrero can speak to this, most voters in March actually had a, had a pretty good experience. The, the, what cropped up was we did see long lines in many of the polling places in March, many of the voting center locations, in particular on Election Day. And I think that had to do with a variety of different circumstances unique to the primary. I think a lot of people waited until the last minute to cast their vote in person. It also had some uh, some technical problems um, and technical um, issues where voters had trouble checking in uh, due to problems with the poll pads that were used in these in these new vote center locations. Uh, the research that the uh, county recently released um, actually jives very well with the research that we've done um, that indicates that the, the issue seems to have been one involving the inability of many of these these polling pads to sync uh, the voter information, the voter registration data locally from the the county's database, which just simply made the the process longer and more difficult for the vote center staff and the voters who were trying to check in to vote. And do we know whether that was a hardware problem with the pads that, that the poll workers were using to check people in or a bandwidth issue? Has that been clearly identified why they weren't working? Well, in the in the report that the the county released, um, they indicate that it mainly seems to be an issue with the poll pads themselves. Um, you know, think about it technically for a second. I mean, these these basically are glorified tablets. I mean, they're they're kind of like the tablets that we all use in in our daily lives. They don't have a lot of storage capacity. They don't have a lot of processing ability. And what they have to do is they have to sync the information that's on the pad with the county's database um, at, a, at, at relatively quick intervals um, so that they can, have, they can have an accurate reflection of, of who's registered to vote in the county and who's already received a ballot. 
They also need to search through that database very quickly. Um, you know, the county has 5.4 million registered voters. And so for, uh, you know, when someone checks in at one of these vote center locations, uh, you know, they, they have to search through that data set very, very quickly. And it just seems that there were just technical issues with most of these poll pad devices um, that, that went down on, on Election Day, where they just had difficulty syncing and difficulty searching. And then people got provisional ballots. Is that what happened if they couldn't um, if they couldn't uh, get them checked in on the pad? Exactly. And, and that's then that's the, the, the whole point of the provisional balloting process is that it provides a fail safe when, when that can happen. And in fact, that was what happened to me um, and my wife when we tried to vote on the Sunday before the election. We went to one of the smaller voting um, vote center locations here in Pasadena. Um, we walked in and, and, and it was immediately clear that, that things weren't going well in that location. We tried to check in um, and we were told that we would have to vote provisionally. Um, and I said, hey, why is that? And they said, well, we just don't really know, but we're not able to sync our, our data with the county's database. So my wife and I decided, well, let's go just to a different location. And, and that is one of, the, one of the, the great things about the vote center model is that if you go somewhere or if you think there's a long line at one of these locations, you can easily go to another location. And, and that's what we did. And we didn't have to wait in, in, to, to vote at all in the second location we went to. And the process was flawless there. So... That's, that's what happened to most people who had this problem. Um, and, and, you know, people were able to vote. They may have just had to wait for a while or fill out a provisional ballot or, like in our case, go to a different location where there was no line and the, the, the poll books were working. Of course, the fear is that if the if it's an extreme wait, there's a certain percentage of people who just they're not going to stick it out to cast their vote if, if it's that way on Election Day. Uh, Michael Alvarez, professor of political science at Caltech. He co-directs the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project. And with us is Professor Fernando Guerra, professor of political science in Chicano Latino Studies at Loyola Marymount University. He's also director of LMU's Center for the Study of Los Angeles and a member of our Southern California Public Radio Board of Trustees. Uh, professor Guerra, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. You actually surveyed people on primary election day and what did they tell you about their experience yes so my assessment of this report that was just released and what actually happened in the march primary election in los angeles county is based on the research at loyola marymount university um, at lmu we interviewed over 3,500 voters in march as they left the polls by the way, this is the largest per capita exit poll in the nation, and it was the largest per capita exit poll in the last 10 years since we last interviewed 4,000 voters in 2008. So no university, no entity in the nation has more data on the voter experience at the local level than LMU. So what did we find? Overwhelmingly, the number of voters, 87%, had an excellent or good experience. Specifically, 59% said excellent, 28% said good, 8.8% said fair, and 4.1% said poor. For the vast majority, the new system worked. Now, this is not in any way to take away from the frustration and the bad experience that many people had, because 4.1% equates to a lot of individuals, because as Michael said, this is a very this is the largest uh, electoral jurisdiction in 
the country. We have, as Michael said, 5.4 million registered voters. By November, it's my estimate that we'll have 5.7 million registered voters. And so when you say 4%, you're talking about 50,000 people who actually came out to vote uh, in in March. And it could be 100,000 in November if we don't take care of uh, of this problem. And so it's, it's, uh, it's significant, but the system worked. Let me say, Larry, and I, I, I believe this, but I'll defer to Michael a little bit more on this, but I believe this new voting model is the most advanced, well thought out, and more importantly, potentially allows for greater participation than any system in the U.S. Once we iron out the kinks, you know, I think jurisdictions throughout the United States will start duplicating. It is, I believe, and will become the best practices in election management in the United States. That's high. Rollout. A big rollout like this is going to have problems. There's no way they could have simulated all of the pressure on these e-poll pads. That is when you were checking in. I think many of the voters remember you would go and check in and they'd have these gigantic books and they would find your name and then with a ruler they would yeah. go out and you would sign. Well, that's now all being done electronically and that put a lot of pressure uh, there were problems with this even before Election Day, as Michael said, when he went to go and, and vote early. So what we have to do for November is to drive as many voters to vote by mail or to drive as many voters to vote early, not have that, that experience on Election Day. All right, we're going to, I need to break. We'll continue with Professor Fernando Guerra of Loyola Marymount University, where he's professor and also directs the Center for the Study of Los Angeles, and Michael Alvarez, who is professor at Caltech, a political scientist there, and co-directs the Voting Technology Project that's a collaboration of Caltech and MIT. We'll be back in one minute on Air Talk. You have questions for our guests about Los Angeles County's voting system and uh, an audit conducted by an outside firm just released several days ago. Uh, with a number of suggested fixes for the system in advance of the November general election. You can ask your questions at 866-893-KPCC or post on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We're with Professor Fernando Guerra of Loyola Marymount and Michael Alvarez of Caltech. Fernando, just quick question for you. The, the poll that was conducted, was that of voters who voted combination by mail, in person, multiple days, or was that all day of primary polling? That's a great question. It was all day of. So in March, 2 million people, a little bit over 2 million people voted in LA County. 50% of those voted by mail, right? And then of the remaining 50%, um, 27% or 14% of the total voted early. Like Michael said, he went out and voted early. That is a record for LA County, by the way. And then 36% voted day of. So we're talking, we did the survey of the 36% who voted on election day where the major problems were. And that 36% translates to over 750,000 voters on election day, which by the way, could double in November. 
that's where the potential problem is going to be if we don't get people to vote by mail more or if we don't iron out these kinks. And we should mention that come November, everybody will be receiving a vote-by-mail ballot. Uh, you don't have to request it, so you can you can send it in and truly vote by mail, or you'll be able to drop it off uh, at a vote center once it's open. You can drop it off on Election Day if you want to wait that long and risk a line. But, um, but that's something that we, we have never seen before. Professor Alvarez, um, we have a couple of questions from Kim writing on the page. One is wondering if your project consulted with Los Angeles County as they developed the vote system. And secondly, Kim wanted to make a point that uh, even though voters are handed a paper printout after they vote, what's actually counted is the QR code, which humans can't read. And, you know, so in, in a sense, you can check it, but you can't check the QR code. So to, to answer the first question, um, back in, uh, it was probably about a decade ago, um, in, in 2010, uh, yet yeah, the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project uh, actually helped kick off this decade-long process that led to this new voting system um, that LA County has developed. And uh, we've, you know, we've been involved in various um, ways um, over the years. Um, and have actually, you know, really been been pretty heavily engaged with them uh, over the, the, you know, the last, uh, you know, year or so as they have rolled this new system out. Um, in fact, we were just on a um, on a conference call with uh, with some of the staff yesterday about some of these very issues um, about how in particular um, they're going to start implementing some of the many recommendations that are in the board report to try to ensure that that some of the issues seen in, in the primary don't occur again in the fall. Uh, you know, the November election is going to be a very different context because it, it, you know, everybody will receive a vote by mail ballot, but we're also going to be voting in the midst of this pandemic. And, and that's going to create a whole new set of potential issues for, for how the vote center operations um, will, will work. And, 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 you know, like one interesting question for, for uh, you know, Professor Garrett's how are we going to be able to collect data like uh, they've been able to collect, uh, you know, for like that kind of exit poll data? Oh, a very good question, Fernando. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, this whole new system is, is changing that. Now, the challenge, of course, is because of the pandemic, it's going to be very tough for me to justify to put my students out. I mentioned we interviewed 3,500. That would be 3,500 contacts with other people. So I'm not sure we're going to do that in that manner. The way we can do it, of course, is to do uh, during early voting and right before those who voted early that we can interview them. Uh, but it's not really about the day of. In, in a sense, we'll be actually interviewing those who voted early and those who voted by mail because we want to interview people after they have voted, not before. We don't want a pre-election, but we want immediately after you voted, what, what are your, uh, your opinions? So it, it makes it incredibly difficult, but it's hardly, you know, our research is hardly the problem. It's more important how do we get voters uh, uh, out there. Uh, you, you know, we got to just say, go vote early and vote by mail. And that's what this report talks about, that we should really be uh, focused on that. There is one little issue that the report doesn't talk about that I think is very important. Yeah, real quickly, yeah. And that, and that is that um, the ballot, how the ballot plays out on, on there, sometimes in the format, uh, there were uh, voters who actually could skip 
some candidates because the the uh, the race was on two different pages and if you didn't turn the page you wouldn't see uh, the other candidates and therefore couldn't vote for them. The city of Beverly Hills sued because of that and they wanted to change that format, but it was too late. And it had some real world consequences in March. And I believe, for instance, in the city of Southgate, it impacted those election results. Wow. Something else we have to take care of. And there's no mention on that in the uh, th- in the audit here or the uh, board report that happened on April 27th. Okay, let me share some uh, comments. Tim uh, said, I was one of the people who waited three hours to vote in Santa Monica. I filled out the LMU survey. I'm one of the 4% who had a horrible experience. I also didn't receive my vote by mail ballot, even though I always vote by mail. Called the registrar. I was told it would be sent. Uh, Let's see. Tim also said $300 million. Now we'll all vote by mail because it was such a failure. Angriest in L.A. writes, in the late afternoon of voting day, I went to five locations in West L.A., all had two-hour waits. None of them had adequate parking. In the end, I picked one, waited for over an hour. Uh, and we've had a number of people post about uh, what uh, the training was for poll workers. Um, Daniel and Van Eyes, one of them saying, these people need more training. When I was there, poll workers were saying they only had a couple of hours of training on the machine. So a number of, of different challenges there. I want to thank you both professors for being with us. Michael Alvarez of Caltech who co-directs the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project, and Fernando Guerra, who's professor at Loyola Marymount University, where he directs the Center for the Study of Los Angeles, and also, we're very happy to say, a trustee of Southern California Public Radio. Coming up next, it's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I want to thank our tremendous production team, which is led by senior producer Fiona Ng. Our other producers are Matt D'Angelo Antonio, Natalie Chudnovsky, and Lindsay Wright. Our news apprentices, Sabrina, Sabrina Fang and Julia Murray, and our engineer, Parker McDaniels. Thank you all so much.
From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. You're hearing Bernard Herrmann's famous score from the day the earth stood still. Our critics on Film Week this week are Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Angie Hahn of Mashable. We'll hear what they think of longtime The Daily Show host John Stewart's new comedy, Irresistible. It stars Steve Carell, Chris Cooper, and Rose Byrne. Will Ferrell is back with the comedy Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Uh, Ferrell stars in and co-wrote the comedy David Dobkin directs and Rachel McAdams co-stars. And it's a big week for documentaries, including HBO's Welcome to Chechnya and Ella Fitzgerald, Just One of Those Things. It's Film Week right after NPR News. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. We're going to talk about all the films that are new on streaming services, on demand, or even reprises of films. Joining us this week are our critics, Angie Hahn, uh, Deputy Entertainment Editor and Film Critic for Mashable, and Wade Major of Synagods.com. First up this week on Film Week is the comedy Irresistible, starring Steve Carell, Chris Cooper and Rose Byrne, John Stewart, uh, who, uh, of course, for many years was the host of The Daily Show, was the writer and director of Irresistible. Wade, what would you think? Uh, I didn't think as much as I wanted to. I uh, I do like John Stewart, as I think almost everyone does, and certainly respect what he was trying to do with the film. Uh, but ultimately, it feels like a, a watered-down kind of... Um, uh, not very imaginative version of Primary Colors. What Primary Colors did so well, taking you inside the the moral ambiguity and the, the, the corruption of the political process, the campaigning process, uh, this tries to do in an almost folksy, homespun way with uh, Steve Carell, you know, looking for that guy who can be the uh, the, the the red state face of of uh, of, Demo- of the Democratic Party, and he finds Chris Cooper in you know rural blue collar America, and um, then things start to feel very mechanical at a certain point. There's the romance, and there's the the, the twist and the switcheroo, and it and it really starts to kind of fall victim to all of its own cinematic machinations. Irresistible, the comedy from writer director John Stewart. Angie, what do you think? Yeah, I didn't care much for it either. I mean, it was obviously it's by John Stewart and it feels frozen in time from the last time that John Stewart was at the forefront of political comedy when he left the Daily Show in about 2015. And a lot of that has to do with the politics and the tone. It takes this glib both sides are just as bad approach and makes observations about the divide between coastal elites and quote unquote real Americans that would have felt stale three years ago, but feel especially out of touch at a time when there are protests raging in the streets in the middle of a deadly pandemic and Americans are having this national reckoning about race. Uh, and it also does this Adam McKay thing where sometimes the characters address us directly to explain what they're really thinking or scold us for what it presumes we're thinking, which really feels like a crutch, like it's trying to have it both ways. And then on top of all that, I don't think it really works that well as a drama or a comedy. It's not especially funny. Like one of the jokes is that Steve Curl's character likes to eat and that's the entire joke, which is 
about as interesting as it sounds. It's not, and it doesn't really get that deep into any of the characters or make you care about them. There's a good message here, but it's just buried under all the stuff that doesn't really work. Irresistible, the comedy from writer-director John Stewart. It's rated R. You can see it on multiple video-on-demand platforms, or you can see it on the big screen of the Mission Tiki Drive-In in Montclair in the Inland Empire. The comedy Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, stars Will Ferrell, who co-wrote the screenplay with Andrew Steele, Rachel McAdams, co-stars in the film David Dobkin as the director, Angie. So this is a Netflix comedy about the Eurovision Song Contest, which of course is a real thing, and Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams play an Icelandic duo who are not very good, but nevertheless get this once-in-a-lifetime dream opportunity to compete in this uh, uh, contest. And it's a little bit like a Christopher Guest mockumentary, like, you know, if you think of Best in Show or A Mighty Wind, in that it immerses you into this very particular world structured around a big event, but obviously has a very Will Ferrell sense of humor. And if you can gather from the title, the overlong title, it's very much in the vein of Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, or Anchorman, The Legend of, Ron, the Legend of Ron Burgundy. So if you like those, I think there's a good chance you'll like this. But Will Ferrell, I would say, is actually not the best part of it. I think it's Rachel McAdams. She's someone we've known can be a very good dramatic actor in films like Spotlight and The Notebook, but she's also very funny. I don't know if you've seen Game Night from a couple years ago, but she really got to show off a lot of her comedy chops there and she gets to do a lot of that here so a lot of the fun is just watching these two play off of each other in this big over-the-top universe and it helps that there's a lot of genuinely catchy songs dan stevens plays a russian pop singer who has an especially good one called line of love that just delighted me every time it came on i do think it's probably a little bit more interesting if you are familiar with and already a big fan of eurovision there's a big sequence in the middle that is one of the showstoppers of this the entire movie that is just dedicated to showing off past performers. So there, I think there's a lot of jokes that sailed over my head since I'm not super into it. But overall, it's a, I had a good time with this one. We're talking about the Netflix streaming comedy Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, co-written by Will Ferrell, who stars with Rachel McAdams. Wade, what do you think? Thank God for Dan Stevens. He is the shining light in this thing. Uh, if it weren't for Dan Stevens, I would have checked out uh, well before midpoint. Uh, I, I normally like David Dobkin as a director. Shanghai Nights and Wedding Crashers, I thought, were a lot of fun. I think the part of the problem here is the double-edged sword of Netflix. Netflix is a very hands-off operation once movies get going. And that means that if you are, if you don't want the meddling of the development process to interfere with your artistic vision, you win. But if your movie needs a little bit more shaping and handling by that process, you wind up with something that's long and flabby. And I think this is, you know, minus credits, this clocks in just under two hours. With credits, it's over two hours. It's at least 15 or 20 minutes uh, way too long. So, it overstays its welcome in a lot of sequences that just drag on and on and on and belabor the joke. Um, I, I, you know, I think Eurovision is innately very, very funny. Uh, this is sort of prime Will Ferrell territory. You know, pick uh, pick uh, a an occupation, a world, and then insert Will Ferrell to create havoc and sort of magnify all of the eccentricities of that world. He's done that. Uh, like Angie said, in you know Ricky Bobby and and uh, everything else, ice skating, 
And and it would be funny, I think, if it were a little bit leaner. Um, Icelanders are very, very self-deprecating. I'm sure they won't take offense at how they're sort of depicted in this. Um, but I just I do wish it it, it it had had a little bit more attention to to honing it down and giving it some shape and rhythm. We're talking about Eurovision Song Contest, the story of uh, Fire Saga, Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams star, David Dobkin directed. It's rated PG-13. It's streaming on Netflix. That ice skating um, satire, Blades of Glory, was uh, with Will Ferrell and uh, John Hader. My Spy, an action comedy that stars Dave Bautista and Chloe Coleman, Peter Siegel, the director, and Eric Hober and John Hober, who are brothers, are the co-screenwriters. Angie, what would you think of My Spy? It was both a little bit better than I expected and not quite good. It's it's a movie that you've seen even if you haven't seen it, by which I mean it's one of those family comedies that pairs a big muscle-bound dude with a precocious kid in the tradition of Kindergarten Cop or The Pacifier. The muscle-bound dude in this case is Dave Bautista of Guardians of the Galaxy and Blade Runner 2049 and other things. And the kid is Chloe Coleman from, uh, I think she's the most famous for Big Little Lies. And uh, Dave Bautista plays a CIA agent who is surveilling Sophie's family, and that's how they come into each other's lives. And I know I keep talking about Dave Bautista, but he's really the best thing about this. He's a really likable performer in a lot of the other things that I've seen him in, and he makes even direct like Stuber from last year seem almost worth watching, and he is very likable here. He has great comic timing. He does great physical comedy. He has excellent chemistry with the kid, but he's also really winning in some of the more emotional parts, so... That part of it I really liked. I also appreciated that the script's a little bit self-aware. It's a little more clever than I was expecting. But at the same time, self-awareness doesn't make up for the fact that it doesn't completely make up for the fact that it's also very, very predictable. You can see where it's coming from a mile away. And that's not always the worst thing, but it is a movie that I walked out of thinking, well, that was fine. If I had, a, if I were watching it with a kid, that would be a good reason to watch it. But I can't really imagine a reason to tell an adult to watch it by themselves. Mostly, it just made me hope that Dave Bautista can get some better roles in the future. It's rated PG-13. My Spy is the action comedy. Wait, what'd you think? I enthusiastically second everything Angie just said. It's spot on. Uh, I love Dave Bautista, but man, this just uh, this just went to the well for every single one of those cliches from the, you know the muscular guy with the the kid that outsmarts them, and then it's got the romance folded in, and you know you you kind of know where every single beat and turning point is going to come here. She's right. You've seen this movie, if you, even if you haven't seen it, you just know it in your genes. Uh, and it's kind of unfortunate. Peter Siegel uh, is has been a, a good comedy director before. Tommy Boy, you know, we all love Tommy Boy. Um, but it's been a long time since he's kind of really nailed, stuck the landing, you know. He gets smart and 51st Dates. They all kind of miss it a little bit. And I think this one has the same problem. It's just kind of missing it's missing the mark and it's too bad because Dave Bautista really has has great comic timing My Spy the action comedies rated PG-13 you can see it at the drive-in at the Vineland in the City of Industry at the Van Buren in Riverside and the Mission Tiki in Montclair it's also available streaming at home on Amazon Prime Video My Spy again is rated PG-13 our film week critics uh, next up are going to look at the documentary the Ghost of Peter Sellers, directed by Peter Medic. Wade, what did you think? 
I think this is absolutely amazing. Uh, this is this is an extraordinary kind of documentary. It's more of a personal memoir of, of, of sorts. Peter Medak, you know, who, who's made tons of just extraordinary movies. He's originally a Hungarian filmmaker, but he came of age in 1972 with the ruling class and Peter O'Toole, and that really just vaulted him to the forefront of A-list directors at the time. And he would later on go on to do everything from comedies like Zorro the Gay Blade to dramas like Let Him Have It. Uh, really just a superb uh, filmmaker, but he's been troubled all these years by the film that came on the heels of the ruling class, which was Ghost in the Noonday Sun, a pirate comedy that he was supposed to make in 1973 with Peter Sellers that turned into one of the all-time movie catastrophes. And it... He, he, he practically has PTSD from the experience. And so Peter Medak has decided to go and reconcile himself to the ghosts. What went wrong? Why did this film go so south? And why is it still so stuck in his psyche that he can't get over it? And he goes back to all of the people who are still alive who were part of it, the financiers and the producers, and tries to reconstruct what went wrong. And it is it is absolutely fascinating, not just from a filmmaking standpoint of how a movie can go wrong, even if the people making it are presumably competent, in which case Peter Sellers is just uh, off of his, out of his mind and impossible to work with. But it also gives you the insight into the fragility of the artistic mindset, that even if you are a completely capable filmmaker, you're still perfectly capable of being pulled apart if circumstances don't, uh, don't come just right. I really loved it. The Ghost of Peter Sellers documentary from director Peter Medek. What did you think, Angie? I think I was less emotionally taken with it than Wade was, but I really appreciated what it was doing. It's, you know, it's a really interesting spin on the documentary, on that subgenre of documentaries about films that never got made. I think I've seen, I've seen Lost in La Mancha and Jodorowsky's Dune reference a lot when people are talking about this movie. But it's also, but it, but because it's being directed by the person who tried to make the original movie, it adds this interesting layer. And in that sense, uh, the movie that I was thinking of while I was watching this, it's very different. But I was thinking of Sandy Tan's Shirkers because that's another movie where having the person who originally made the movie talk about this movie all these years later with the with the perspective of that added time, just adds a, adds adds a really interesting level to it. Uh, so I think Peter Sellers kind of it's it's a fun movie if you want to hear wild stories about the crazy stuff that Peter Sellers got up to on set. There's a scene that I really enjoyed where Medak is talking to other directors that he worked with, and they're just talking about how even when it was great, even when they're making good movies with him, it was just miserable working with him. So in that sense, it's really amusing. But one of the things that I really appreciated about it is that it's it understands that he was not the ultimate villain. He's not the only reason that this movie didn't happen. It's a movie that they are pretty frank about the fact that it probably should not have gotten made, or at least not at the point that it was made when it clearly just wasn't ready to go. It felt, it felt, it seems like the movie was kind of cursed from the start when the pirate ship that they had spent all this time and money building ran aground because of a drunken captain. So, it, so what it really left me with was this appreciation that it's a minor miracle anytime a movie actually does get made with all the moving parts and all the things that can go wrong and all the kind of egos and artistic visions coming together to form something coherent. The Ghost of Peter Sellers documentary by Peter Medak about his experience making the 1973 pirate comedy Ghost in the Noonday Sun with uh, 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 younger uh, Peter Sellers, uh, up-and-coming filmmaker with an actor who uh, had quite the reputation Medak was trying to work with. Uh, The film is unrated. You can see it on multiple video-on-demand platforms. They include Amazon 
Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, and YouTube. It's unrated. Now, coming up in just a minute, we'll talk about the HBO documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, which takes us to the Russian Republic of Chechnya and the film following LGBTQ activists as they work undercover to rescue victims and provide them with safe houses, among other assistance. We'll hear about that, as well as the documentary, No Small Matter, about early childhood education. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC, kpcc.org, and smart speakers. All you need to do is ask it for Film Week. Next up with our critics, Angie Han and Wade Major, welcome to Chechnya, an HBO documentary, which is directed by David France. Wade, please start us. Uh, this is an absolutely riveting and harrowing documentary about a, a, a network of uh, LGBT activists in Chechnya who, um, where because it is an extremely conservative uh, Muslim population and it is run by an autocrat who is effectively handpicked by Vladimir Putin, there, there is cultural... Um, basically a cultural dictatorship layered underneath the political dictatorship. You are expected to behave a certain way, to adhere to certain cultural norms, one of which is uh, if you are openly gay, you will be uh, at worst uh, murdered, uh, at best routinely beaten. Um, in one case, there's a, there's a, a pop singer whose uh, who's sexuality is suspect, and he's, he disappears, and he still hasn't been heard from. So this is about a network that is is almost kind of like a, literally like a an invisible you know an underground railroad that uh, is there to help people who uh, might whose families uh, they might be at risk of their families at risk of political persecution to help them get out of the country and um, it becomes almost like a thriller at a certain point like a political thriller you are taken right inside all of the the machinations and the this the spy network and the and the spy craft that goes on to actually pull this off and it's utterly fascinating the thing that's uh there there are two things i would say one that's a little disconcerting and one that's a little bit artistically uh off-putting one is that they can't quite focus on this they can't choose the story that they need to focus on. There are about three interconnected stories here, and uh, each of them kind of interfere with the other one right when they're starting to get you completely wrapped up in, in the events. They, they derail over to the side and take a little bit of a detour, um, which is understandable. They want to tell all the stories. They just don't quite get the balance right. The other one is that you have to be concerned that by making this film, have they, in point of fact, undermined what it is that they're doing? Have they sort of tipped their hand to these authorities? And I don't have an answer to that, and I don't think anyone does, but it is it is a question you're left with. We're talking about the HBO documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, which uh, begins airing on HBO Tuesday of this coming week. Angie, what do you think of the film? Yeah, to Wade's second point, it's a movie that makes you wonder. It's one of those documentaries where you wonder how it even got made, because they 
tell you over and over that secrecy of the, is the, of the utmost importance. These, these are people who are literally fleeing the country to save their own lives. So you, so it makes you wonder, how, how did we even get this footage? I read in an interview that a lot of it was apparently the director posing as a tourist, which got him a, little, a lot of leeway with authorities whenever he did run into them. But the other thing that they do is use, I guess it's similar to deep fake, deep fake technology, where they digitally alter the faces and voices of a lot of the subjects, most of them, by swapping them with actors who are, you know, not these people. And it has an it has an odd effect. At first I wasn't really sure. You can tell some of the some some of the times the VFX works better than others. So sometimes it's very obvious that what you're seeing is not entirely a real person. Other times it's it, it, other times it's more convincing and you're not really sure if you're looking at it. So it can be a little bit unsettling at times and it took me a little bit a little while to get used to, but I ultimately think that that was a choice that is probably preferable to other ways that they might have had of trying to tell these people's stories while also protecting their identity. I imagine that this was a better option than, for example, putting them in shadow or blurring out their faces. And it also leads to one of the most powerful moments in the entire documentary, which is when one of the subjects decides that he's actually going to come forward and reveal his identity. And then you just see the digital effects melt away and you finally get to really see him for the first time. And I thought that that was a point that really just tied the whole thing together and hammers home exactly how desperate the situation is for these people, the lengths that they have to go to to protect themselves, and how brave it is for them to be speaking out at all about any of the uh, stuff that's happening to them. So as Wade says, it's a little bit all over the place, but ultimately I found this to be such a harrowing, fascinating watch. The HBO documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, is directed by David France. It's unrated. It starts showing on HBO Tuesday and is available on HBO's On Demand uh, site on Wednesday of this coming week. The documentary, No Small Matter, directed by Danny Alpert, Greg Jacobs, and John Siskel, looks at early child care and early education. Wade? Really, really good. And, and so important at this particular point in time because we we aren't you know with 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 so much focus on uh, social problems and how to resolve them I think everyone is looking to put a band-aid on it or wag the dog by addressing uh, how do we deal with adults and no one is really looking at where the problems begin which is in those first five years of life when brains are developing and uh, good on Alfred Woodard who narrates this and executive produced it and is kind of the the face and the power behind getting it out. It's a very engaging documentary about the science behind early childhood development and why it is so important to get it right because if kids get to five, six, seven years old uh, without having uh, fed their, their development correctly, you may very well have lost them permanently or at least substantially in their lives. And that, of course, feeds into economic inequality and political problems and uh, crime rates and, and, and gentrification and so many other issues. And if you go down to the root of it, if you get this right, those other problems can be addressed and can be possibly eliminated. That's basically the theme of the film. And uh, I thought it did an absolutely superb and very entertaining job of doing it, not in that very dry talking head way, which they get out of the way immediately, just in the first few seconds. They, they let you know this is going to be an entertaining and engaging way of addressing a very serious subject. And as the father of an elementary school-aged daughter, uh, I have seen this discussion up close and, and personal for the last several years, and I 
really, really do think that this is vital for anyone that has kids in the system, anyone that expects to have kids in the system, anyone who wants to sort of go to the root of where a lot of these problems we're talking about now originate. No Small Matter documentary uh, writ, uh, directed by Danny Albert, Greg Jacobs, and John Siskel. Alfred Woodard is the narrator, and the movie's unrated. You can see it on demand with Amazon Prime Video, iTunes, or Google Play. The South Korean drama House of Hummingbirds is written and directed by Bora Kim. Angie? Yeah, I found this to be a really lovely, sensitive coming-of-age drama about a working-class 14-year-old girl named Unhee growing up in Seoul in 1994. And it's a kind of movie where I, I want to say not a lot happens in it, but it's not actually true. So over the course of the year, this character deals with death and illness and sexual awakening, family drama, abuse, and meanwhile, in the backdrop, you know, South Korea is rapidly industrializing, and there are big events that are referenced in the movie, like the collapse of the Songsu Bridge and the death of North Korean dictator Kim Il-sung. So there's a lot going on here, but the reason it kind of feels in some ways like it not that much happening is that she takes this really slow, sensitive, patient approach. Um, director Bor Kim avoids sensationalizing or editorializing or waxing, waxing nostalgic about the past. Instead, she takes this really observant uh, uh, approach to the story and she and in doing so she picks up these little details in ways that feel all the richer because she's not spoon feeding them to you like you, she she's content to just let the camera sit on the characters while they are processing something that's hap- just happened or thinking about the next move or just waiting to be noticed and i think this works really well especially because Unhi, the main character is such a lonely solitary character who feels overlooked by everyone in the world, including her own family. But making a sit like this with her really helps us build this intimate connection with her. And, you know, the downside of this kind of filmmaking is that it does take time. So it, this movie clocks in 140 minutes and it does feel slow sometimes, but I think it pays off in the end because it feels like you're really living this life with her. Um, I mean, to me, that approach was reminiscent of something like Hirozako Koreeda and that sense of patience and the way that the world feels really lived in and its lack of sentimentality. So... I think between the relative slowness and the long runtime, it might not be for everyone, but I think it's absolutely worth seeking out if you want to see some exciting new talent in the form of this director and also the lead actress, Pak Chu. House of Hummingbird, South Korean drama, Wade. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, Angie nailed it uh, spot on. It's, it is the kind of film that critics typically call deliberate, which is a nice way of saying it's slow, but it's <laughs> worth your time. It's, it's worth uh, sitting down and, uh, and letting it kind of soak in. Uh, uh, you know, it's nice that the success of Parasite has sort of opened up opportunities for more Korean films to, to come over here. And the thing is, you know, like any other major industry, like Japan, like Hong Kong, like France or, or Italy, um, South Korea has many different traditions and genres in its in its filmmaking. And one of them, is, you know, Parasite is obviously one school, but there there is this school of very slow, very thoughtful, Koreeda-type films, which of course you get from Japan and, and elsewhere too, and uh, this is one of those. It's not going to rush the story, and you you, you do let it kind of wash over you. It, the, the cast is wonderful. Uh, Jihu Park is, is really a very, very nuanced actress, and it, uh, it, 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 it's very effective. It takes its time. You know, you really have to stick with it. I think for about the first 40 minutes, some people might start to want, you know, get a little bit impatient, but hang in there. It'll, it'll pay off. The film is House of Hummingbird. It's unrated, and you can see it on the Frida Virtual Cinema and on Google Play.
The Last Tree, a British drama written and directed by Shola Amol. Wade? What a beautiful movie. Uh, this is from Art Matin Productions, which is a, a new upstart distributor. This film uh, premiered at Sundance. It is being a little bit superficially called the, the English or the British um, uh, Moonlight. I don't think that's really quite fair. It, it, the only thing it really has in common with Moonlight is that they are two films by black filmmakers that tell semi-autobiographical stories in three life chapters. Apart from that, they are not at all the same. Uh, the last chapter here is played, you know, it's only two actors here, not three. And the last chapter is really more of a coda. Uh, Shola Amu is a Nigerian-British filmmaker. Uh, after many very good shorts, this is his feature debut, and it is very impressive. It is a, a very poetic but telling story of a young man who of Nigerian roots, the son of a Nigerian immigrant, who is initially raised by a foster mother, an English foster mother in, in the countryside, and then his Nigerian mother reclaims him at a certain point to raise him in London, and he is at that point subject to rather extraordinary cultural clashes in his own sense of identity. Who is he? Where does he belong? Uh, you know, the countryside versus the city versus Nigeria, and all of these things uh, kind of collide in his, in his soul, and he becomes this very restless and, and internally ambiguous person. And it is about that journey, which involves being part immigrant, part, you know, not really knowing where you belong in the society and in the world. And it's told so beautifully. It has an absolutely wonderful score, incredible sound design. It is visually just absolutely arresting. And the performance by the, the actor who plays him as a young man, uh, Samuel uh, Adewunmi is incredible. He is an extraordinary actor. He is magnetic. You can't take your eyes off him. And it will bring you to tears in at least two or three places. The Last Tree, British drama written and directed by Shola Amo. It's unrated on Lemley's Virtual Cinema and the Frida Virtual Cinema. The documentary Ella Fitzgerald, Just One of Those Things, is directed by Leslie Woodhead. Angie? This is a lovely tribute to a great woman that gets at exactly what made her such a singular figure in American music, which is not just her talent, but also her powerful charisma, her omnivorousness, her versatility, her ambition. It also offers a lot of context about the culture that helped make someone like her possible, but also the culture that sometimes stood in in her way. And it, it just moves through her, bio, her biography in chronological orders, broken up into chapters. And in doing so, I think it really reminds us that a lot of the conversations we're having about white Americans loving black culture, but not black people have been going on for a really long, long time. And the admiration that the that this documentary has for Ella Fitzgerald is palpable. It also has a lot of her music, which makes it so that this is kind of just automatically entertaining. But that said, six decades of her career is a long there's a large amount of time to cover in 90 minutes, so it does feel it does end up feeling more like a jumping off point for deeper exploration than a deeper exploration in and of itself. Wade, you got about uh, 30 seconds for Ella Fitzgerald, just one of those things. I think Angie nailed it. Uh, what I appreciated is that normally the, the crooners and especially the jazz singers of this generation, uh, whether it's Dinah Washington or Judy Garland or Billie Holiday, they're so troubled and they're so angst-ridden. And you know what? Ella has it together. And it's so, it's so reassuring to see that story told, too. And don't forget Sarah Vaughn. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald, just one of those things, unrated. Lemley's Virtual Cinema, Leslie Woodhead, the director. And wait, I know you you definitely want to bring up the digital restoration of 1995's Shanghai Triad by Zhang Yimou. 
Yes, Zhang Yimao uh, did an absolutely masterful job with Shanghai Triad, which is now uh, on virtual cinema through Film Movement. Go to filmmovement.com. Really an extraordinary recreation of the the gangster dramas uh, that took place in the streets of 1920s Shanghai. Uh, It's an absolute must-see, one of the most visually arresting films ever made. Starring Gong Li. Rated R, Shanghai Triad, Film Movement, Virtual Cinema. And then next Friday, Lemley's Virtual and the Frida Virtual Cinemas as well. Our critics joining this, this uh, joining us this week, Wade Major and Angie Han. Coming up, we'll talk about the future of movie theaters with the frames John Horn. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. As you know, of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the films we've been talking about on Film Week are ones available to see in your home, and few of them available for drive-in showing. But indoor theaters, those cinemas have not reopened in Southern California, even as many other businesses like bars and restaurants have opened their doors. But the question is, will moviegoers return and under what sorts of safety protocols? Uh, And will there be new films attracting moviegoers to those theaters? With us is host of KPCC's The Frame and the brand new podcast that debuted this week, Hollywood the Sequel, John Horn. John, great to have you with us again on Film Week. So let's just talk a bit about the tremendous challenges uh, as to what they would be able to show and also the safety of reopening movie theaters. Oh, it's a huge problem. I mean, you have a couple different things that are happening. One, obviously, the number of cases is surging. And the CDC said today that it might be 10 times the number of the 2.3 million confirmed cases right now. So you have the coronavirus not stalling at all, but kind of mushrooming. And at the same time, you have a real predicament for movie theater owners. They are losing a huge amount of money. They're burning through cash. They have leases. They have other expenses. And they have gone from a multi-billion dollar business to zero revenue overnight. And then you have companies like the Walt Disney Company that has lost billions from the pandemic through theme parks and its movies that they can't release. So you combine all those things together and then you have states that may or may not allow movie theaters to open and you have this real issue. The theater owners need to do business. The movie studios want to generate some box office revenue. People probably are itching to get out of the house and see a new movie But are they going to feel safe? And even if there are rules in place for social distancing, you know, a lot of people may be asymptomatic. They might go into theater feeling great and you might kind of pass them coming in out of the restroom and you're going to be exposed. So I think right now nobody really knows. And the most recent poll that I saw from an organization called Morning Consult said that just 23 percent of the respondents said that they would feel comfortable going to the movies now. And that's based on a poll of about 2000 people over the last week. John Horn joining us on Film Week. Uh, we've got a couple of tentpole films. Um, Christopher Nolan's Tenet that was scheduled for July 17th. As we're recording our conversation, that's still on. And Disney's Mulan scheduled for July 24th. Uh, At the time of recording, there are questions as to whether Disney is going to stay with that date or not. And, John, if these two films ended up being pulled back by those two major studios, 
could theaters even be feasible for them to reopen? No, because nobody would come. I mean, that's the real problem. There's a theater chain in Britain that's opening, and they are showing you know reruns of classic movies like Little Women and Dirty Dancing and The Greatest Showman. But if you don't have new content, people aren't going to want to go to the theaters. And if you're a movie theater distributor and you're only in a number of states or maybe it's only 25% capacity, do you want to spend the tens of millions of dollars that it requires to open a film theatrically if you can't get theaters even half full? And you got to talk about the investment, too. I mean, Mulan is a $200 million movie. Disney wants to maximize its investment. And Christopher Nolan is a firm believer in the theatrical experience. So if people can't see Tenant in theaters, he probably doesn't want it shifted to some sort of video on demand platform. Universal has caused a lot of problems in the exhibition business by taking two of its movies, Trolls World Tour and The King of Staten Island, out of theaters and onto video on demand platforms because they want to get those movies seen and get some money from them. But it becomes a bigger issue for companies where the investment might be bigger. And you have a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan, who probably feels very strongly, and I think rightfully, if you can't see my movie in a theater, I'm just going to have to sit on it. And then you have companies like Warner Brothers and Disney that have these huge sunk costs, and they can't return anything on their investment. John Horn with us, his brand new podcast, Hollywood, the sequel, which is devoted to looking at how Hollywood uh, and its productions uh, restart business. We're talking about the future of theatrical film exhibition and with us from the National Association of Theater Owners, Vice President, Chief Communications Officer Patrick Corcoran. Thank you, sir, for for being with us. One of the things we heard was, you know, with AMC theaters, the nation's largest chain, originally the they talked about, uh, you know, masks would not be mandated. Then after there was uh, outcry against that, then they said masks will be mandated. Is there concern among the large exhibitors that um, moviegoers are going to be reluctant to come back if they have to be masked? Uh, thank you, Larry. Uh, it's there, There's a lot of uh, moving parts to all of this. And w- there are mixed concerns. I mean, John referred to um, the morning consult poll, and there are a lot of others. And there's a percentage of consumers who do not want to go to movie theaters wearing masks. There's a percentage of moviegoers who will not go unless there are masks required. So what movie theaters have had to navigate is a lot of different state mandates across the country that that vary, uh, particularly in terms of whether you wear masks or not. And so companies like AMC and Regal, which operate across the country and across different jurisdictions, were sort of trying to accommodate to their local conditions. And you heard from the consumers that they they didn't find that sufficient. They were not happy about it. And AMC and Regal very quickly changed course, listened to their customers. Uh, And and this is part of what we've been uh, talking about with our, our members for weeks and months at this point, which is that your operations are your marketing right now. I mean, there's no way you can put a marketing campaign out there that says, our theaters are safe, come back. What you can do is say, this is what we are doing to minimize risk in this new era of pandemic. Here's all the procedures we're we're doing, whether it's disinfecting, cleaning, social distancing, mask wearing, variety of things, and to show your customers what it is you're going to be doing. And so when they show up and they see that it's being done, they have that confidence and they tell other people. It's really very much about trust and, and you know, 
the social compact that we have with our customers and, and they have with us and with each other. John was saying that if uh, Tenet and uh, Mulan are not going to be uh, exhibited by the studios on the scheduled dates in mid-July, theaters wouldn't be able to reopen. Uh, there wouldn't be films driving movie going. You agree with that? Uh, there are a number of films that are scheduled uh, around those two movies. Uh, you know, Unhinged from Solstice, which is a new studio coming out uh, with a title July 10th, the Russell Crowe movie. Uh, there's also uh, other things that are opening in early August. There's also uh, Broken Hearts Gallery in St. Maud on the 17th, as well as the, the re-release of Inception. Uh, whether those movies hold on if Tenet and Mulan move uh, is an open question, and that's part of the, the world we're in right now. We're going to be responsive, and the studios are going to be responsive to what's going on in terms of the pandemic itself, in terms of reopening schedules in various states. Uh, as it stands now, uh, 40 states are open either fully or partially for movie theaters. Uh, what are they showing? Uh, they're showing library content, you know, classic movies, uh, movies that were available right before everything shut down and uh, and doing OK. Uh, you know, uh, as far as the major releases, we kind of looked at what is available in terms of <clears throat> seat capacity. Uh, and this is, is if you don't get New York, you know, so you have about 90 percent of of screens available at about 50% capacity. And you work that out by the number of seats and the average ticket price and basically what you would have available with about five showings a day, each day would be about $100 million worth of potential sales. Now that doesn't mean any movie is going to make that in, those, in each day. Yeah. It tells you that the capacity is there for a wide release to make money over time. Okay. On Friday or Saturday night, the way it's been expected and the way we're used to. But there is that potential for things to open. So that's one of the things the studios are looking at. The studios are also looking at overseas markets and for them being open. All right. We'll continue our conversation with Patrick Corcoran, Vice President and Chief Communications Officer of the National Association of Theater Owners. And we'll talk with Greg Lemley, the President and CEO of Lemley Theaters right here in Southern California. Uh, even though their theaters, of course, are not open, they do have a virtual cinema platform they've been operating. We'll talk with them about that and the future of art houses on Film Week. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. We're looking at the future of movie theaters, when they're going to be able to reopen in Southern California, and what films they'll be able to show when they reopen. We're talking with John Horn of KPCC's The Frame and the brand new, brand new LA's Studios podcast, Hollywood, the sequel, Patrick Corcoran of the National Association of Theater Owners, and Greg Lemley, President and CEO of Lemley Theaters, uh, the Art House chain here in Southern California. Greg, it's good to have you with us. Um, I would think one of the challenges for for your screens is your moviegoers, your customers are probably a bit older on average than uh, the big studio tent pole uh, audiences that go to the you know major complexes. Does that make reopening even more challenging for you? Uh, well, it may. Um, 
the uh, yes, there the art house audience tends to be older, and and older people are more in an at risk category. Um, uh, we're going to you know offer the same uh, experience um, with you know social distancing and extra cleaning, um, but it's it's an open question as to whether people will feel comfortable returning. For content, do um, theaters like yours have the same challenge as uh, the big chains which show Hollywood product, or are are the kinds of films you would show anyway going to be more available? Well, we have the same challenge in the sense that people decide, uh, you know, to go out and see a movie based on what they're going to see, and it needs to be something that's compelling. Um, so we do need films uh, in release, and, uh, you know, the distributors of some of the more important art films want to know that their films are going to, you know, get seen around the country. It's especially important that they get seen in the two major markets of New York and Los Angeles. So, um, you know, where we are in L.A. will also depend on, on where things are in New York. Uh, it's going to be, you know, very important. Um, but there have been films that, uh, that have been available throughout this period, new films, many of which are playing day and date, um, and uh, day and date with, you know, uh, with video on demand. Um, and, you know, there will continue to be those types of films. I mean, uh, coming up on uh, July 1st, I think, is uh, the John Lewis uh, documentary. Um, which will be playing uh, in theaters where theaters are available to uh, are open and, and, and able to screen the film. And in situations where they're not, it's going to be, um, you know, available as a, as a virtual cinema. Offering. Are you are you looking at reopening just as soon as L.A. County authorizes it? Well, we have a three to five week ramp up period. Um, ultimately, I mean, our, our staff, uh, you know, the theater staffs have been laid off. Um, and we don't feel comfortable bringing back people until we know for certain that um, that the jobs are going to be there. Um, and it's going to, you know, once the manager gets on, they're going to have to, you know, establish new training procedures. They're going to have to secure staff, uh, and we don't know to what extent people are going to be comfortable returning to work. I mean, let's not forget we're, we're, we're concerned about the safety of patrons, but we're also concerned about the safety of our employees. Do you think you'll be able to sell uh, food at the concession stand? Uh, the expectation is that we will be able to sell food at the concession stand. Restaurants can be open. People are unmasked while they're eating. I don't see why that's significantly different than people being unmasked and eating inside an auditorium. All right. Uh, we're talking with Greg Lemley of Lemley Theaters here in Southern California. You have a number of films out this week, as you do every week, that are on your virtual cinema platform uh, so that people can watch films through Lemley Theaters platform at home. How has that been working financially? Well, it's contributing something. Uh, Number one is that it allows us to stay in contact with our customer base about film and not just say, we're closed, please buy a gift card. I mean, we can still continue a conversation with our customers about what films are available and and what is worth uh, worthwhile uh, to see. Um, So uh, that's something that has uh, kept us busy during this period. Um, and it's probably something that will continue because, as you know, you know there will be an audience that is ready to come back to the movie theaters, um, older, younger, whatever. Um, but there will be people that want to continue to to stay home, and uh, it may be that at least with some of the art house films, you're going to see uh, uh, simultaneous uh, opportunities both to buy tickets to see something in the theater and watch it at home. If you have to operate it 
at, let's say, 50% capacity, uh, can you still be profitable at that at that kind of uh, ticket sales? Well, we're frankly expecting it to be set at twenty five percent capacity. Twenty five. Can you can you can you open the doors at that? There are some venues that we can't open the doors. There are some that we can't. Um, we have you know a number of uh, our our model is based on smaller seating capacity auditoriums, and uh, that's fine when we can you know max out that seating. Uh, when you get down to twenty five percent of a 40 seat auditorium it it you know and you have a number of those in a, in any given venue it becomes a real question mark so uh, can you uh say which venues would be likely the first ones you could open well a lot of it will depend on the product flow um do we start with theaters that play uh if there's commercial films available um granted you know better quality commercial films like uh, something from Christopher Nolan uh, those may lead the way um if it, it turns out that, uh, you know, it's more of an art house picture. We'll see. Um, so you're saying that the location and reopening would depend on the pictures available? Uh, it, it will, yes. Okay, because you have different audiences in, in different uh, cities, is that right? That's correct. Okay. We're talking with Greg Lemley, the president and CEO of Lemley Theaters. Let me go back to uh, John Horn uh, of Hollywood, the sequel, the podcast, and KPCC's The Frame. Uh, John, a very challenging time, obviously, for movie theaters. But the last time you were on to talk about this, AMC was talking about the challenge of, of remaining a going concern without any revenue. No, they have said that they are default imminent. Uh, They have about $10 billion of debt. They're burning through $3 million in cash every day. Um, And listen, they may not be able to make it. I mean, the movie theater owners have gone from billions of dollars of ticket sales every year to zero overnight. And I have to say, I drove by the Lemley Playhouse this morning, and it actually— it made me choke up. I mean, this is a theater that I have gone to a lot. It's next to Romans, one of the great bookstores in the nation, and it's shuttered. And it's really sad that people can't go to movie theaters. I understand why they can't and why they might be hesitant to, but it does feel like something is slipping away. And if AMC can't make it, you know, mom and pop chains can't make it, and bigger chains can't make it, and, you know, studios like Universal are moving their content to video on demand platforms. I don't know what's going to happen. It feels like it's a real tipping point, and the theater owners are in a terrible, terrible situation. And for moviegoers who are going to want to see films that need a big screen, that need the communal experience of people watching the film together, uh, and of course what art houses like Lemley's provide to communities as gathering places, I mean, these are, are absolutely invaluable parts of our community. It's just hard to imagine not having movie theaters to be able to go to. So we'll see what the future brings, but I want to thank our guests for joining us and sharing uh, their thoughts about all of this with us, The Frames and Hollywood, the sequel, the podcast host, John Horn, Patrick Corcoran of the National Association of Theater Owners, where he's vice president and chief communications officer. And our thanks to Greg Lemley, the president and CEO of Lemley Theaters, which has been in his family for generations, providing art house films throughout Southern California. Have a wonderful weekend from all of us at Film Week, and thanks so much for joining us.